Welcome to another episode of Double or Nothing. Michael, it's been a massive week in markets. The Bank of England's exploding or the UK's blowing up. There's something to do with the budget, politics. What's going on? Yeah, it's been wild. Um, there are a few really interesting things about that whole episode. Um, firstly, the policies were, were unusual. They were really kind of right wing. Trickle-down economics was kind of pretty comprehensively discredited. Um, but this was a budget just delivered that basically took out the entire top tax rate. Um, so they promised tax cuts and these have landed squarely on the rich um, with the idea that will stimulate growth. Um, none of it was costed. Um, and at the same time, they said they were basically going to give huge or spend a huge amount of money um, compensating people for energy bills. And the market reacted extremely poorly to this. Um, and basically the pound had one of the, like some of the biggest moves it's had, like basically similar kind of um, levels to what happened when George Soros famously broke the pound, I guess, 30 years ago, um, almost, yeah, 30 years ago. Um, the interesting part and kind of the scary part was that pension funds got into a huge amount of trouble. So the beginning of the year, you know, long-term interest rates were extremely low and the UK has a very extended yield curve. They have like very long denominated bonds. Um, so you have a bond, you know, maturing in 50 years um, at a 0% interest rate. And all of a sudden that interest rate goes to four or 5% or more. Um, the drawdowns are pretty spectacular. Like you're talking about 50, 60, in some cases, 70% drawdowns in the bonds. Um, and it was made all the worse because the regulators said, look, you got to match your assets and liabilities. Or rather they made the, the way they calculate kind of risk and, and capital requirements, they make it really favorable for you to do that. So if you're an insurance fund that's going to have to pay out um, a policy in 50 years, it made sense for you to effectively buy these very long dated instruments. Then what happened is people then started swapping them in and out of different interest rates, trying to get extra yield, trying to hedge here or there. Um, and fun, like if, if you buy a bond that matures in, let's just say 50 years and interest rates go up and the bond collapses, it's not really a huge issue because you don't have to pay that until you know the, the bill is due in 50 years time, which is when the bond matures and you get the cash. Um, a huge mark-to-mark -mark loss, but it's not disastrous. Like there's logic for doing that. The issue is with all, all the financial derivatives on top of that, they are kind of, they're firstly mark-to-market -mark as a bonds, but you also need to put up cash um, to fund losses or to fund margin sufficient to cover um, potential losses from the counterparties. And so that was the issue they had. So all of a sudden these pension funds um, had to put up huge amounts of cash uh, which they didn't necessarily have, especially as um, they started selling their liquid assets and selling their bonds themselves because to, to raise the cash. So it really created this like crazy dynamic um, that one of those moments where it needed a um, stop breaker and it actually happened. So the Bank of Italy came out and said they're going to purchase an enormous amounts of bonds outright, unsterilized. They're not selling anything to buy, just straight up buying bonds. Um, and that immediately put a stop under, under it. I think the pound's now actually above where it was at the beginning of that like budget delivery. Um, so it's interesting for a few, few instances. It caused like a, a pretty big risk on rally around the world. Um, firstly, I, I think it's been, a, it's been almost six weeks straight down. You know, even in September has been one of the worst Septembers. You know, I think um, NASDAQ and the S&P are down eight and a half to nine and a half percent. So it's been, the market was already very fragile and very oversold. Um, and basically in a way you could argue this is the first central bank to kind of switch from quantitative tightening to quantitative easing. So there was a speech that one of the, the governors was going to give about quantitative tightening that just got cancelled um, because in between the scheduling that speech, um, 
in between, yeah, before that speech was actually given, um, the bank had already switched to easing. And so that is interesting from a market's perspective because this whole dynamic has largely been kind of central bank driven. Um, so to see a major central bank pivot's a strong word, but certainly switch from quantitative tightening to quantitative easing, maybe that maybe pivot is the right word for that, um, kind of like shows what will likely happen elsewhere in the world at some point. You know, this tightening environment is not going to last forever. At some point in the future, they will, they will switch to easing. Um, unfortunately, the, unfortunately for people, for investors, the, the risk rally reversed almost immediately, like with one day. So this market is so weak that it can't maintain a rally for more than a single day, even one where there's actually kind of, even from extremely oversold levels where you've got a major central bank pivoting. Um, and that, that was kind of, I think, a surprise to a lot of people. Um, and I think kind of an indication of just where we are, like it's still, it's still pretty bleak out there. You know, there's a lot of, there's quantitative, another round of quantitative tightening will hit the markets tonight. Um, there's also a, a, an inflation reading that's coming out, you know, an hour before the US Open. And everybody's kind of hoping for the first big down inflation print. Um, but this year, that's that every time that every time these prints come, they seem to come in red hot. And it's kind of, yeah, go. Uh, I hope you didn't go all in on that one day rally. <laughs> uh, no, but obviously we're like, basically we're not fully invested, but we're, we're, we're generally, you know, we're, 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 we're yeah. Not that much cash on the sidelines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we have but some it, cash, but we're certainly. I, I can see like, um, you know, you can see the bulls just, just hope, hoping that this pivot to easing is suddenly replicated around the world and and you know these are the good old days of of the u.s fed starting to print um again and, and and supporting and supporting stock prices um i saw some of those charts with the with the pension fund valuations just like collapsing and it's pretty mm. scary like i i'm not um yeah, I'm not an expert on, on how those pension funds are structured and nor, nor do I, you know, nor do I really deeply understand how differently that is to, you know, Australian super funds, but it did just, just generally make me wonder, you know, on a long enough timeline, you've got to be afraid that if you're saving, if you have structural savings, you know, effectively in pension funds or super funds, um, you know, like that gets wiped periodically in like, almost every economy. Mm. In fact, I think Australia is one of the only economies um, where there hasn't been a hundred percent drawdown. Um, I think it's Australia and, and the U S I want to say, but like, but pension funds periodically through inflation, through other kind you know, through wars, through other disasters, just kind of blow up occasionally, you know, maybe now it's going to be like, um, you know, random financial engineering or markets. And, and it, it, it just sucks because for people like you and me, you know, whatever, a, we're young, b, you know, we're like professionals in the city, or whatever. But like, this is the this is the this is the money of like you know some 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 nurse that's been working like her whole life, or you know, or a you know, or a police police officer or whatever. So I don't know. Like th those numbers looked 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 pretty stark. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely. And it was, it was, that was very regulatory driven in the sense that the way the rules were designed encouraged people a to park their money in these long term bonds. Um, at basically no interest rate. Um, so even though they're not they're mark to mark, even what I was saying about mark to mark, they will get the money back at the right time. You're still locking in basically no return in what is now a very high return for fixed income in a very high inflationary environment. Um, but then those rules also allowed them to take these complex leveraged derivatives on top of those positions 
that can be cash called. So there, it was pretty um, poorly designed regulation that I'm sure will change. But you're right. I mean, Australia hasn't had anything like that. Um, I think if a pension, if a super fund leave it up and then lost a huge amount of money, that's just a scale of crisis that we haven't seen here. Like the question here is, you know, should a particular fund that invested too much in VC and private equity, should they write down those holdings by 20%? And that'll be a small part of their component. You know, should the whole fund be two, three, four, five percent lower than where it's marked? That seems to be the level of conversation here. Whereas there, it's like, well, you've just taken a 60, 70% drawdown on a huge part of your portfolio. Um, and you've got complex leverage derivatives and your other assets are illiquid, maybe in private equity, fixed income. Um, sorry, in, in funds that you can't necessarily get out of. That's, yeah, I don't think Australia's come, I don't think any super fund in Australia has come close to that level of potential disaster. Um, to, to be the, fair, as you noted, so much it's regulatory driven, and even though it might be designed with with the best intentions to match durations or, or you know manage liquidity, um, you know ultimately have all these unintended consequences that you know sometimes these kind of you know correlations of risk converging on 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 certain events, and so mm. it's kind of hard to generalize too much from from the UK to to here. But uh, but look on the um, you asked me earlier around. Uh, yeah, so I obviously sit in, in private markets, and so while you're invested in mainly listed markets, and it sucks when things go down from a kind of private um, equity perspective, when you have funds to deploy, that's probably on balance not a, not a terrible thing. It's it's not good for uh, ex, you know selling assets, but it's probably on balance good for um, for buying assets. And as you as you kind of noted, um, you know uh, we've been um, noted in the press for for being you know, pretty actively involved in, in a couple listed technology opportunities in in, in, in Australia on the ASX and um, yeah I, mean, I think it, it's an interesting it's an interesting time because you know, if you had asked me six months ago and, and we may have actually spoken about this um, um, uh, originally you know, like, like like a few few episodes ago but if you asked me six months ago boards were very much reluctant to engage because they were anchored to price levels from 12 months ago or so um but you know as, as you've noted the kind of the price levels just keep grinding down and, and our house views probably that that won't um won't change too much um uh you know that that's gonna that's gonna continue for 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 a, li for a little while um and so both public and private market um uh, shareholders and, and boards will probably over time adjust pricing. Um, and so, I mean, you're absolutely right. That, that kind of provides opportunities for us to, to manage through, um, you know, funding losses or, or company transformations in a private market context. Hey, so how do, um, actually got a couple of questions on private equity. So if you're looking at, there's a lot of kind of number of software companies um, or software like companies recurring revenues in the ASX trading for like two times sales. And they're using that in that like kind of hated loss-making technology um, bucket, but they're still kind of growing. They're still like real businesses. There's real value there. How do, how, how's private equity looking at that? Like, is it the cliche would be you buy it and then you just strip out costs, get the margin and then refloat it at four to six times sales on two to three times when a company's two to three times bigger um, five years later. Is that kind of the way you're looking at these things? Is, there, is that an oversimplification or is, it, is there more to it? You know, uh, 
uh, from your lips to God's ears. I, I, I wish you were, <laughs> I wish you were like, it, it quite worked like that. It typically doesn't really work. Like I think the the details really matter. Like e- each opportunity um, tends to be, you know, each business is quite different. Like it, it's the market dynamics, it's actual technology. Like every company in the world will tell you how proprietary their their technology is, how special they are, they're the leading provider, etc. Um, sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's not. Some markets, you know, we take a view that it'll work, and some markets we take a view that you know it'll be hard to to get to profitability um, in, in the near term and to continue to grow. I think, um, you know, again, each opportunity is different. So I, I, I want to be cautious around, um, uh, you know, generalizing too much. But more often than not, it's really about backing growth rather than then, then cost out. Um, you know, often these companies are, are investing so much um, into growth because they really do need to grow, um, and they've been telling the market that um, you know they are they are very profitable um, at scale, but they're not quite there yet. And if they stop growing, they're not going to be profitable. And so mm-hmm. you do need to take a view often that um, you can back growth. Um, obviously, a, a, as a firm. You know, we've this is all we do. That is software and, and, and technology. And so, um, you know, in some instances, I can't speak for other private equity firms, but I think um, in some cases we can take a view that um, that, that that generalist funds um, can't because you know we, we've kind of played that game before and we understand um, understand these businesses. But look, you know. Um, you know, it'd be great to be able to buy a companies at a at a lower multiple and ultimately exit at a higher multiple. To be honest, it's rare that you can kind of um, really, really, back, you know, um, bet on that. Like even the one, you know, say they're trading at two times, which is just a, a random data point that you threw out. You know, you typically need to have a meaningful premium on that. And then, sure, I'd like to say I can exit at six times, but you know, ASX firms aren't trading at six times. So how do you how do you kind of build an investment case where you where you're selling at six times ARR? You know, like or you know, so um, so it, it kind of like sounds really nice when you kind of just put those into a, a you know, onto, onto a napkin. Um, but actually, um, it, it's kind of it's tougher than that. Mm. Sure. And I think like more, more generally in private equity, it's in your views. So interest rates have risen a huge amount. It's like easy for me. To, it's easy to see in something like real estate where you're like, interest rates are above the rental yield or the cap rate of a business. Like the price has to come down to the rates above A, what you can get in the bank and certainly B, what the high rate of what somebody um, needs to borrow to kind of like buy that asset. It's very easy to see how like valuation and prices and high interest rates work. Um, and obviously we saw that happen to a huge degree in, in the tech space where basically any loss-making growing, even if a growing market-leading company has taken a huge hit. Um, I'm curious what happens to private equity now, and particularly the vintages of the last couple of years. So companies that were bought when interest rates were exceptionally low, um, almost certainly with a lot of debt. And now when that debt needs to be refinanced, it's going to be at a much, much higher rate. You know, potentially, you know, the difference between 3 4% and, you know, 7 8 9% or higher even. Um, and furthermore, you'd think asset prices in general are going to come down just with those higher rates the same way they have for everything else. So is there like some looming private equity issue that, you know, will start to come out? Like surely these firms that bought companies in 2020, 21, even 2019, will those vintages come under pressure? Yeah, so good question. I mean, um, I probably start with, you know, I just don't think these asset classes are quite as um, as kind of correlated to interest rates as, say, property, which is, you know, mm 
all cap rates. Basically, you value it on, on cap rates. Um, and, you know, th- that said, you know, your observation around tech companies being pretty levered to um, interest rates. You know, my view on that's probably, you know, if you just kind of, um, you know, dis- you know, so much of their value is tied up in like a terminal value because they're basically trying to grow so quickly and so unprofitably to a hyper profitable terminal value that is just hypersensitive to to interest rates. And so, um, you know, when interest rates were zero, the highest growth companies, um, you know, really exploded in terms of their their valuations. And as you start ratcheting up interest rates, they kind of conversely um, st- start to collapse. But overall, and you see like a muted version of that across the market, obviously, you know, obviously, you know, not just in tech, but across um, listed markets, valuations have, have fallen. So sure, if you have bought in a higher valuation environment and um, paid higher valuations, and now you're looking to exit in a lower valuation environment, and, and you know, you, that that's not a good thing. <laughs> like you, you want to be buying in a low valuation environment, so in a higher valuation environment. But but you know, so much of the value is not just um, you know, in, in, in private equity assets. Is really around you know, have you grown it? Have you improved the operational quality of the asset? It's not like literally just chucking on, on on a multiple. Are you able to reposition it for a strategic buyer who's buying now? Like now, it's just a hard market to to exit to um, because mm. um, you know corporates are just you know gun shy etc so i just think that there's a lot more noise than just interest rates but i don't think there's like this looming crisis very plausibly i, I don't know and we probably won't know for a while whether the last few years have been a bad vintage for private equity don't know that said like um you know there seems to be more rather than less dry powder on the side so i would have thought even if firms bought some assets and probably paid more than they would have liked um, in the same fund. They've probably got enough capital to kind of make up for it and hopefully pay um, less assets in, in, in the current environment. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of the confusing things, right? So you've got these huge falls in market prices, but then you have ostensibly a lot of cash on, or certainly a lot of underplayed VC funds. Um, I know in the listed space, a lot of funds are sitting on a huge amount of cash at the moment, the cash allocations as high as they typically ever get. Um, but at the same time, you know, you're still at new lows now, today. Well, well, one, one comment, one anecdote I'll throw in, and I'll, I, probably, I won't name the firm, um, but one uh, Australian private equity firm owned an asset that had significant float income. So there are a range of you know, financial-ish or financial-adjacent assets that happen yeah. to hold a bunch of cash. And if you happen to hold a bunch of cash as part of your business, you know, some of that revenue, um, uh, you know, might come from interest income on that cash. Now, they bought that asset, um, um, I, I think it was pre-GFC, um or, or around the time of, of the GFC, where interest rates were just falling. And basically, if you kind of follow analyst forecasts every year um, since then. Everyone's kind of forecasting interest rates to kind of go up forever since then, but they kind of bought that asset at that time. Interest rates obviously went to zero and kind of went unprecedented low level 
the last decade. And so they're sitting on this asset that's highly correlated interest interest rates because they've got this float income. And then they finally sold this asset like last year or the year before, basically the last year before interest rates started to go up and now interest rates started to go up. And so they basically owned this asset that was highly correlated to interest rates for the you know single period in world history when interest rates were at, at rock bottom. I don't know that maybe that's private equity humor, but I, I kind of find that pretty. Funny. Yeah, it's just kind of the way things work, isn't it? Yeah, it's life, you know. I mean, it's interesting with these high um high interest rates. How many strategies that didn't make sense before start making sense again? So, an example in in the in the real world, I guess, would be you know any business that relies on float income. Like that's extraordinary now. You can get four or five percent in a bank. Um, another strategy that's going to come back big time in markets is a style of macro where you kind of sit on cash and then you have your four to five percent of income that you can then use to make pretty big bets with options um, in a way that you know you can't really lose money. Like if you've if you've got cash paying, let's say five percent. Famous last words. Famous last words, yeah. Well, generally what people do is they sell options as well. So that's when the risk comes in. Um, but really, you know, technically you could use that 4% to buy calls on any anything you wanted to speculate on. You could you could do it to do the market. You could, um, you know, buy calls on the market and have a capital protected exposure, not one for one, but certainly a decent chunk of that, uh, of the upside in the market. You know, I remember like pre-GFC, like capital protected notes were a huge thing, like structured products. Um and now pretty good, you know, like, okay, you get 50% of the market return um, over five years or your money back um, if the market goes down. And basically all they'd do is go and buy long dated options. Um, and then I think, obviously, I think by the, the time the GFC hit, they all got really complicated. So that wasn't enough. So it's like, okay, you get the market return unless the market drops more than 40%. <laughs> so you're like buying a long dated call and selling a long dated you know, one touch option. So if it hits that level, you get wiped out. But obviously, you can you can you can sell those for, for quite a bit. Um, uh, and then in the crisis, mean, they all got wiped. And 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 the overlay here is uh, kind of the geopolitical situation around the world. You know, so um, you know, a, a few years ago, uh, um, uh, Peter Zihan wrote a book, Disunited Nations, which I thought was awesome. I wrote mm. this long essay, but you can. Check it out, but um, but ba- basically, its thesis was um, that the U.S. is withdrawing, um, you know, the, the kind of um, the post World War U.S. liberal um, order of kind of U.S. Navy protecting uh, the seas is kind of drawing um, to a close, and it's going to give rise to regional conflict, and that's basically playing out. You know, mm-hmm. um, obviously, we're seeing that with kind of Russia, Ukraine. You're seeing that with a resurgent kind of Turkey. Um, you know, issues you know, in, in in Iran. Like, I, I guess the, the the point being of the next decade and, and probably beyond, you'd probably bet on just um, higher risk more volatility, more geopolitical uh, uncertainty. And that kind of gives rise to, you know, increased market volatility. And I think I kind of agree with your comment that that kind of gives rise to these interesting um, trades. And, and you know, in, in around the 2000s, um, you know, post-crisis, you had these, 
you know, heroic um, traders emerge, um, you know, or, or, you know, obviously well before that you had George Soros and, and the Bank of England, um, you had Druckmiller, um, you know, around around the 2000s and, and, and others there. And so I wonder whether the current um, environment, you know, you've got all this cash, you've got pretty sophisticated markets, you've got high volatility, you've got geopolitical uncertainty. I mean, I think we're in for a great show in financial markets <laughs> is, is all I'm saying. Yeah, it's certainly going to be a show. Um, I don't know. I, I guess the, the the worst case scenario is probably something like what happened from 2000, which obviously we have huge similarities here. We had a two and a half year bear market followed by a rally, followed by the GFC. And that's when like kind of 10 year returns were negative for like major stock indices. Um, I, know, I saw the Hang Seng index is now at like 10 year lows and looks like it's going to approach the 2008 low. You know, so you're starting to see some pretty big moves across the board. Um, but yeah, it's, it's tough. I mean, one of the things I thought, a lot of the inputs into inflation have come down quite a lot. But you just haven't seen it in the headline numbers. So, you know, crude's down 40%, used car prices are down 13%, freight rates collapse, including the last couple of weeks. There's a huge backlog of ships. Now there's no backlog. Um, home prices are down. Leading rent indicators are declining for the first time. Um, obviously, it's kind of wages are a pretty important piece of this puzzle. Um, but there have been huge price falls across the board. Um, but that hasn't that hasn't resulted in lower bond yields. And in fact, you know, from it was only it was only in August. When was the low? There was a recent low at two point five. Yeah, two point six to three point eight since August. So that's a big move, like 2.6 to 3.8 in six weeks. And that's kind of what's pushed markets down. But you're seeing that happen at the same time that you're seeing so many of these prices falling. You know, some of them have been falling for six months, some longer, some just really rolled over in the last couple of months. Um, so I'd be curious to see when this starts, when these lower price inputs start to feed through to inflation and whether that's enough to start turning this around. Um, that will be interesting to see. It was interesting just to go back to a point you made earlier around, um, you know, the the strange policy uh, posture of the new Tory government in in, in the UK. I, I'm not, uh, you know, I don't follow UK politics um, t- too closely, but it does strike me, you know, that the Tories have just been completely out of ideas for the last decade and have just been this kind of, you know, um, uh, and I don't even, like I, I'm not even suggesting labor any better, but like the the, the, the kind of the political class in, in the UK has been completely out of ideas. I'd probably say the same for Australia. And I don't know if, if I'm biased because you know when, when I was younger, I was all kind of hallowed and um, you know it was all kind of appeared respectable to a naive mind. And, and now that I'm growing more cynical and world wearied you know i'm kind of seeing these jokers for for kind of who they are um but it does make me pretty pessimistic you know generally speaking and i wonder if there's a catalyst for change you know do, do you get a leader in the uk and i don't know australia's probably better better off who knows but like say in the uk to kind of um to, to turn the country around you know what is the outlook like it just mm. makes me sad you know uk just feels like it's all just been on this decline you know tra- tra- trajectory so i don't know i'm not as close to, to the uk yeah, as you are but that's probably i mean when i when i was there it was austerity politics the conservatives were all about austerity and that was like a vote winning um vote winning formula like people like 
the English people like the sound of that. My guess is what happened this time is that, you know, party politics is always more extreme than like mainstream politics. Like when you're trying to win a vote amongst the broader population, you try and go for the center usually. Um, when you try and, um, but, if, but obviously if the votes in one particular party, the, the, the center of gravity has shifted. So my guess is this is, there's, there's a lot of people in, in the UK that, in the UK Conservative Party that wanted much lower taxes um, for the very rich and, and, you know, scrapping of banker bonuses and other aspects of this policy. And they, they won enough support within their party. But as far as I can tell, of what we can see from approval ratings and things like that, the support in the country is extremely low. So my guess is this, that's not really a sustainable state of affairs um, and it'll probably snap back the other way, one way or another. Um, it's also interesting to see, like, was this, is there a line from Brexit to here? Um, there's probably some, there's probably some parallels you can draw, you know, the way that they've, the way that they've kind of, um, I guess, felt that they could really go their own way in a large world where there's market forces that are much kind of bigger than you, you know, somebody's going to have to buy these British bonds to um, fund these deficits and to fund these cash payouts for higher energy um, and to fund these tax cuts for the rich. And that's why the yield move has been so explosive. Um, yeah. it's not like, it's not like the United States, even in the United States, like if you look at the last kind of few weeks, the treasuries moving treasuries has been pretty spectacular as well. Yeah. And, and what's so this week we also saw a massive, um, hack Optus hack. Hmm. What's your, what's your, uh, take on that? It's hard to see. I think it was amusing. Um, the hacker asked for a million dollars. I wonder if you know how he pulled it and said he deleted the data. I wonder if there was, I do wonder, if, and I have no information whatsoever on this, but I do wonder if there was like some deal where he actually got the million bucks and then released the statement. Um, well, it would make total sense. Like, I mean, you know, you, you would have, but it all just seems like such a joke. Like, you know, uh, every part of it was was rookie hours. Some some hacker, you know literally 10 million Australian details, a half the Australian population, basically asked for like a million dollars, like out of Austin powers. And then, um, and then got cold feet and kind of pulled out and just made an absolute clown show of, of the Optus board. And again, it's not really surprising, but I reckon, you know, like, uh, you know, this is the state of kind of security and governance for all the kind of, Puff and puff around um, governance and um, processes, and like it, like no one's in charge, <laughs> and it's and it's just um, it's a clown show all, all the all the way down. Yeah, I mean, telcos should be pretty good at this stuff. You'd think, like the yeah. kind of telecommunications industry, that should be their bread yeah. and butter. You know, security. Yeah. It's not like some random company that sells groceries or something that got hacked. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, what what else is happening? I think it's there's there's some really interesting stuff going on in 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 actual equity prices. So I'd say like a lot of the high growth stuff is way off the lows, but there's a ton of companies that have just pushed to significant new lows at the moment. So Tesla was down six. Tesla's not at new lows, but you know your kind of squares, Shopify's, Twilio's, they've all taken a huge hit in the last um, few weeks. Uh, one that I think is still kind of interesting is Spotify. Hmm. Um, it's tough because they're kind of, they're roughly break even. Um, they've still got some of those issues of stock-based comp, not as bad as like a US company, but they've got like, you know, 450 million users that use it every day. And they've just announced a product where they're going to start selling audio books. So Amazon has Audible, but Audible is like an atrocious experience. You buy credits, you get like one credit. It's a subscription where you get one book credit a month. It's really complicated, whereas Spotify is just going to allow you to buy them. Um, 
book by book. And I think that would be interesting to see if they can actually eke out some decent margin on that. Um, I have such strong views. Someone from Spotify or Audible, if anyone cares about these markets, and I'm convinced they don't, I suspect Mm. like I'm like 30% of the market. No one reads or listens to audio books except for me. Honestly, (laughs) someone from these companies should just give me a call if you care about customer experience. <laughs> I have so many views on how you can actually improve this product. What do you do? What do you do? Yeah. Oh, like, um, so first of all, note taking is atrocious. Now let's assume the hmm. best in class way to take a note, take notes is the way Audible does. We have to actually physically go in, clip and type it out let's assume you can't have vocal you know um audio commands and, and audio notes okay which probably be optimal and it's probably not that hard but let's assume you can't do that do you know how hard it is i, I you can't even um uh, integrate that with um notion or any other kind of note-taking app you can bear you can't download them all you have to kind of go into it Recently, it hasn't been that even has been working, but you know you have to kind of go in, copy it out into a into a Word doc. Um, it's it's a very very difficult, clunky user face in like a best case scenario. Um, so I, I'd, I'd probably focus on making a seamless integrated note taking uh, experience, um, and then also um, I wonder if vocal commands um, could work to kind of pause to, to or to to take notes. Those probably the, the the main ones, kind of top of mind. But honestly, I understand why they don't because what's the market like? What is literally compared to Amazon's kind of market value? What is the what would be the kind of dollar uplift of implementing those changes? It'd be like zero. Like no one cares. The fascinating thing is obviously, you know, you might think the book market is worth nothing, but it's how Amazon started, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's there's, fair. There's a, huge gap, there's a huge gap in the market for, for a proper, for somebody to do what, something like that. Someone who cares, does, totally. Yeah. Does mm. Spotify fill it? Or is there a reason why other people haven't been able to break into the market? Um, but it's a very clear gap at the moment that you'd think somebody would be able to fill you know, without, you know, kind of breaking new technological ground either, just a well-designed product. So maybe if Spotify stumbles, maybe there is an opportunity. So I have another question for you. I just noticed Tesla is something like the sixth largest or, you know, the largest company in the world by market cap. Mm. So um, Facebook Meta has fallen to a market cap of, I think, 250 uh, I'm just going to look it up. 200 and um, so it's 360 billion, you know, not, not shabby. Okay. But Tesla is now like mm. 840 billion uh, US dollar market cap. So like um, that's unbelievable. You know, if you asked me a few years ago, I would have thought I would have told you Tesla's in a massive bubble. It's total bullshit. Is this bullshit? Um, is this like, you know, the, the Apple of, um, you know, auto or how should we think about that? Like, I think there's a few things. I think it was priced extremely cheaply before, like one-time sales. Like they, they, there's a good reason they're, you know, in, in cat, they have often top charts in like best-selling cars and they charge a premium. It's kind of like the way that Apple um, was always a small part of the market, but captured the entire industry profit by charging a much higher margin. Um, because people love the product. That's kind of the happy situation Tesla sits in. Now, where it lands on value, you know, it's not insane. You're talking like a 63 times PE, but, you know, with 85% EPS growth. 
Um, so you've got actual after-tax income now, which you didn't really have or you didn't hmm. even have four years ago. So actually is a profit story and it's not hmm. some, there's, there's much more expensive companies today still. Um, but I think most importantly, um, it, the reason it's outperformed is like those EPS and revenue upgrades have continued to come in. So compare that to the to most tech companies, which have downgraded revenue and significantly downgraded EPS. Like most of these companies were saying they'd be profitable this year, um, and now now profits are two three years away at best. And revenue, if you look at the charts of revenue downgrades, they're just all the way down. Whereas you look at Tesla, it's one of the few things that's really held up. Um, so this method to the madness, but at the same time, what's the right multiple for a car company growing at eighty percent a year, with you know by far best in class products designed from the ground up, like, like easily best in class products where they build most of the things themselves. Um, with and the delivery model. Like, yeah, I, full, I, I, yeah. I can't understate, like it's, I don't know how you think about it as a relative portion of its, of its kind of value delivery, but it is so obviously the pathway for my generation to just yeah. order a, a car online without dealing with some slimy dealer with and total price capacity yeah. it's rubbish it's rubbish i can't go online and just get a mazda delivered to my home or whatever without yeah. thinking about it obviously the tesla direct consumer model is the future yeah and there's so many decisions they made right like even long before they had self-driving or any form of self-driving they're putting all the cameras and sensors in so all those upgrades can come in um come in online like after you do, like if you buy a car now you're basically stuck with whatever technology they decide to stick in it on a particular year um whereas that's not the case with tesla you know it's there's so many little decisions they made like that and when they do get those switch those products on and they are very good um despite what the cynics will say um they're probably the leader in almost certainly the leader in that space you know then each one of those cars becomes a subscription revenue source um pricing which convert like there's so many ways for them to monetize the existing fleet of cars on the road that are just simply not open to other automakers um so it's still it's still one of the most fascinating interesting innovative companies on the planet um you know when i bought it i think i think they're doing something like five billion revenue or something years and years and years ago um so this is kind of been like a story of what happens what can happen with these tech companies you know, they, they, they can grow if they if their products are that good, they can grow to exceptional sizes um, and then profits can switch on. And then really they can use their platform to kind of generate more and more margin. It was kind of what was hoped for, for a lot of these companies. I just think, I mean, this year, it's amazing when you add it up, how many things went wrong for tech. So firstly, you had these, this biggest interest in interest rates in 40 years from ultra low to the highest in a decade, basically. Um, so it was always going to it was always going to cause pretty severe drawdowns for anyone that stayed invested. Um, but then one by one, like other issues happened, like Apple switched off advertising, which smashed Facebook, Snapchat, Shopify. Um, there was a huge oversupply. Everyone bought computers last year, so there's like an overhang of personal computers. So all the chip makers are suffering now under under cyclical, you know, oversupply from like from undersupply only a year ago to oversupply today. Um, what were some other things that kind of hurt? E-commerce obviously crashed. Yeah, like one of the worst consumer environments with energy prices going through the roof um, and, and other prices as well, which left a lot less for um, online spending, whether it's Pinterest, Etsy, Shopify, Amazon. You know, there was just like a bunch of different things that hit different parts of the technology space kind of all at once. Um, and then the few things that kind of seem to be powering on are things like cloud security, cloud computing. But even now the question is, well, 
you know, to take one example, Snowflake's current high flyer now, it's one of those growth companies that dropped 75% plus like everything else, but it's kind of like still 20, 30% above its low now. Um, whereas most companies or many companies in the tech space uh, are basically at the 52 week lows now, including the major ones like Google, Microsoft. Um, but, you know, if people have, if you have like a $5 million snowflake bill, all of a sudden that's relevant to IT departments, even at big companies. So there's a question, will even those companies, this cloud computing companies start to see ceilings as, as people just look at every single cost they've got and go, can we reduce this and how? Um, which probably gives an opportunity for cheaper offerings. But then again, people have, that's kind of been a worry. It's been a consistent worry for 10 years or, or for as long as these things have been there, right? It's like, okay, it's fine. Your, your, your net retention rate's 130, 140%, but you can't just grow to take over an entire company's revenue, right? Like what's the ceiling there? And, always- and a lot of these companies have been growing off rising penetration. Um, and so in those markets, when you've kind of start getting saturation, then you start getting margin. Yeah margin uh, compression that that said there's some you know structural tailwinds that feel like they're just going to go forever mm. still like, like like you know like some, something like 10 percent of software is still in the cloud like 90 percent still on prem you know so like the tailwinds behind aws and other cloud infrastructures like infinite basically and and, mm. and off the back of that you would have thought they're just uh, you know a ton of penetration to go in a range of these markets I'm sure there is. I mean, like one of one of the new newly smashed up sectors is the chip makers. So the trends behind that are just immense. And most of the companies, um, I guess there's there's like there's a whole like supply chain of them. But there's some of them that make like specialized tools. Most of those are consolidated. There's only one or two people that will do make each part of it. And we know that chip demand is going to go through the roof over, over coming years, irrespective of what happens over the next six to twelve months. Um, and even there might even be like excess demand as companies sorry, countries and maybe companies as well, like demand that they have their own supply. Um, so that's like a, I think that's pretty coherent. You know, I'm so like, it's, it's really hard to take a new idea, make new investments at the moment because there's just bombs everywhere. You know, like you could have bought Adobe and then just bought a company. You know, it's, it's just like, there's just, if, if anything, if any company stumbles, the loss is 30, 40, 50%, like extremely <laughs> very hard to like make new investments but at the same time. Seriously. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, you know, that, um, that long-term story is just, is, is, is there, and you know, those companies will have pricing power over time. So what will like ASML, which can kind of makes the machines that makes the chips, um, and particularly the higher end ones, you know, how much money will they make over the next? And will anybody actually cancel their orders? You know, even if there's a slowdown, will they actually have order cancellations and be unable to kind of even, and then the backdrop to that is we know that demand for that high intensity level of computing is just, is going through the roof, irrespective of the cycle. So you've got this weird confluence of like amazing long-term trends and, you know, 50, 60% drawdowns in companies that are very profitable buying back shares. Um, it's a really interesting environment, but it's just the way, I, th- I think why it's, why it's so challenging is the stuff that's going to do best over the, at the back end of this and over the next five years, in many cases are the companies that are under most pressure now. Like these are the ones that people effectively bought the dream of the last two years and are now just liquidating on mass. Um, yeah, well, let's say, so, so, so every time you talk about public markets, I get heart palpitations, but we should probably wrap up. But I, I, I want to tell you um, the kind of private market uh, heart palpitation moment, which is quite different. But I had a, I had a very senior um, 
senior private equity person tell me something the other day, which uh, I think of um, a lot. He said, um, he said, you know, every time, you know, he's never bought an asset um, knowing by definition he's the person who's, you know, paid the most in the world, decided to pay the most in the world for that asset and never thought, fuck, you know, <laughs> like, okay, I better, you know, here we go. Like I better not have, um, you know, I better not be wrong, you know. So there is that yeah. moment when you're buying where you're like, you know, you've won and is is it winner's curse uh, or not? So we all have our um, have our moments. Yeah. Well, I'll put it this way. With everything at the lows and in some cases like multi-year lows um, and in other cases even decade lows, it seems, certainly in valuation basis, um, basically anything you bought, almost anything you bought in the last kind of year is heavily down at the moment. Um, and yeah. that makes that makes it really challenging. So yeah. the only play really was to kind of sit in cash or potentially short if that was if you're bent that way. But it was, it's re- it's really been very hard to escape this one. Yeah, and, and all the short sellers, um, you know, they've just been so hedged over like the longest bull run ever. It's not like they're walking out with like making a mozza either. They they've got like big yeah. long long books anyway. So well, don't exist like the back end of the GFC, right? The people that I used to follow when I was first interested in hedge funds like 12 years ago, um, almost none of them are still around. Like they all kind of lost their way. They all, basically what happened is they became bearish at some point in the last 10 years, too bearish. And that generated losses they couldn't recover from. Like the one thing you have in like my game is that, you know, these companies will increase in size, not their stock prices, but it's very feasible for them all to be three, four, five times the bigger um, in, in, in three to five years. Like a good growing tech company will do that. Obviously, you have to find them, make sure you're in them. So you can actually get those returns. But on those long, short funds, if they take a huge bath, um, it can be very, very hard to, to make it back. But I guess that's, that's where these cycles work. You know, They performed best in 2008, 2009, got all the money for a few years. And then that bearish intent, that bearish, whatever the right word is, that, that, that desire to kind of short sooner, got them sooner or later. Because there's so many, it's easy to look back now and say the last 10 years were easy as one big bull market. But I promise you it was like, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. Like there were so many crises and so many moments where it looked like everything was going to tip over, whether it was like the sovereign debt crisis, which flared up now and then um, 2018 uh, commodities obviously had a few moments where, where there was a, there was a huge up and down cycle. Um, it's only kind well, of in hindsight you see it was a bull market. And- if you didn't think the last decade was easy, wait till the next decade. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> awesome. Should we uh, finish on that note? <laughs> uh, yeah, let's wrap up there. Sounds good. Awesome. Thanks, Chat next week.